A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Again with the interns. First talked about unpaid internships in the Canadian media on the third episode of Canada Land. If you're new or newish to this podcast, first of all, welcome. Uh, but you may want to go back and listen to that episode, episode three of Canada Land, where I spoke with Howard Bernstein, uh, a retired journalist, uh, ex of the CBC and elsewhere, who is actually one of the founders of Ryerson University's internship program and who today thinks that it should be abolished. Even when students are getting university credit for the work they do for these media companies, Howard thinks that the internships should be gotten rid of because the media companies are taking advantage of the students. They're putting them on the job. They're not really training them. They're giving them work that should be going to a paid journalist. And it's not really the kind of training apprenticeship situation, that kind of relationship that was originally envisioned. That is not the controversy right now with internships in the media. Nor is there any particular controversy at the moment about foreign students working as unpaid interns, which you can hear about on another earlier episode of Canada Land titled The Truth About Foreign Students. Go back and listen to that one if you want to hear my chat with this guy. Avanish Agarwal came here from India paying jacked up tuition at George Brown College. They pay three, sometimes four times what a Canadian would pay. And a lot of his classmates from all around the world are doing that and then getting placed as co-op students working as barbacks at Jack Astor's and other chain restaurants in the suburbs. They pay George Brown to work as barbacks at Jack Astor's. But they're getting school credit, so that's not the problem right now. At least that's not the problem that's getting attention right now. What is a problem right now, as of a couple of weeks ago, are unpaid internships in the magazine business. The Ontario Ministry of Labor has audited Toronto Life magazine and The Walrus and found that their unpaid internship programs are in violation of Ontario's labor laws. 
Now is the time for full disclosure. I wrote for a couple of years for Toronto Life Magazine, a technology column, and I know folks there. And I just filed my first piece for the walrus. So that's stuff you should know before we go on. So what have these magazines said about this so far? Over at St. Joseph's Media, the publishes Toronto Life, where they've let go 20 to 30 interns company-wide since the labor ministry cracked down, publisher Doug Knight said, we were doing the socially responsible thing, providing a bridge to these young people to, to break into the magazine world. Similar sentiments by the people who run The Walrus. We have been training future leaders in media and development for 10 years, and we are extremely sorry we are no longer able to provide these opportunities. Over The Grid, published by Torstar, they had to let go five interns in anticipation of the coming crackdown. Though the labor ministry has only targeted The Walrus and Toronto Life so far, they've promised they're going to be going after everybody. So Laz Turnbull at The Grid said, this will be devastating to the industry. What's going on? Where is this coming from? Why are magazines being targeted? Here's the background. The NDP in Ontario, in anticipation of the coming election, tabled a private member's bill that would provide more protection for unpaid interns. The ruling Liberal Party, not to be outdone, unwilling to cede the issue of youth exploitation in the workplace to the NDP, has announced that they've dedicated $3 million a year to stepping up their enforcement of Ontario's labor laws into all unpaid internships. Now, later in this episode, you're going to hear me ignorantly suggest suggest that it's only the magazine industry that is skirting minimum wage laws and hiring these unpaid interns. I have since done a bit more research. According to some estimates cited recently in the Toronto Star, there are as many as 300,000 unpaid interns in Canada, not getting university credit, unpaid interns in all sorts of industries. There's a lawsuit from unpaid interns at Bell Mobility. Yes, magazines have been singled out, but only as the first target of this crackdown because if you target the unpaid interns in the magazines, it gets a lot of press. And that's what the liberal government wants in anticipation of this wider sweep that they're investing $3 million in to get rid of unpaid internships that break the law throughout the province. And what, what is an unpaid internship that breaks the law? Well, it's one where you're not getting university or college credit and you're not getting paid minimum wage. And even if you are getting school credit, the Labor Act says that you cannot be providing any real benefit to the company that is hiring you as an unpaid intern. I clearly would have passed that hurdle in my one internship when I was 16 for classic rock station Q107, the mighty Q, where I was totally useless. But I think just about any other unpaid intern, the barbacks at Jack Astor's and all of the college and university students who are doing co-op placements, they probably are actually doing some work of benefit to the companies where they're placed. So that's probably breaking the law too. Now, the editors of both Toronto Life and The Walrus turned me down for interviews for this week. John McFarlane in particular, former editor of Toronto Life, current editor of The Walrus, who you're going to hear a lot about today, was given an opportunity to tell his side of the story that you're about to hear. He wasn't into it. So instead, I'm going to speak today to Derek Finkel. Derek Finkel is a journalist and writer. He's the former editor of a former magazine called Toro. These days, he's running a writer's agency called the Canadian Writers Group. But back when he was starting, he was the first intern ever at Toronto Life. He wrote about the experience last week on his blog at thestoryboard.ca, and he's going to tell you the story in a moment and then share his thoughts about the wider issue. Hold on for it. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. 
We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Tax time is a good time to sign up for a free account with my sponsor, FreshBooks.com. Cloud accounting, painless billing, specifically designed for freelancers and contractors and small businesses. It's worth trying it out. Tell them who sent you. Go to FreshBooks.com. So you were Toronto Life's first unpaid intern? Yeah, well, I was Toronto Life's first intern, period. In the early 90s, I'd gone to uh, university in the United States, and then I, I came back to Toronto, and I uh, did a master's degree at uh, U of T, and I finished kind of in late uh, 1992. When I finished, I sent out a large number of, of resumes and cover letters to magazines and book publishers and, and, and some newspapers across Canada. And I literally got three responses in total. And one of those was from John McFarlane at, at Toronto Life. It ended up with us having a meeting. It was a recession at the time. He said, I don't really, you know, I, I, your resume impressed me, but I don't really have any work for you. Um, and I asked him, I said, well, you know, does, the, does Toronto Life have an internship program? And he said, no. And he said, you know, I, I have uh, a, a f- basically a philosophical problem with internships because it's, I, I don't like having people work for nothing. And, um, and I thought to myself, well, that's kind of odd because I knew of a lot of internship programs, both on both sides of the border, that did, did actually pay. Yeah. Um, I, I'm happy to be paid and you don't want to not pay me. So just uh, there's, yeah, there's, there's so, an easy solution to this problem. Let's have a paid internship. Yeah. Uh, and I sort of sensed that given our, the way our conversation was going, that that wasn't really going to happen. A week or two later, I got a phone call and he, he said he'd thought it over and he decided that an unpaid internship would be okay to him now as long as there was a cap on it. So, uh, I think mine was 
four months. I was uh, very relieved. I'd been looking to try to get my career started in some sort of meaningful way for like six months, which when you're, when you're 20, whatever I was, 23, 24 years old, like six months is a long time, right? It was action. At least there was something. Yeah, there was something. And I, and I was like in my grandmother's basement up in suburban Toronto and, uh, you know, I was pretty eager to, to move on. Yeah. The only thing worse than being exploited is not being exploited. Right. I mean, I'm looking at it obviously now through the prism of 20 years experience and what happened to me and how I felt about it. I think I felt differently about the internship towards the end of it than I did at the beginning of it. And I've been hearing a lot of other unpaid interns, you know, since this controversy or this, since the government took action against unpaid internships, uh, you know, a week or so ago, that resentment is an inevitable result of of an internship for a lot of people. I'm not saying it's going to be the case for everyone, but it does seem to be a pretty common theme. And what happened in my case was that because I was the first intern at Toronto Life, they didn't really know what to do with me. I think as a result of the experience with me, Toronto Life eventually built a, a, a very structured internship program and and interns did very specific tasks. And fact checking is, 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 is probably one of the you know bigger ones. But I didn't really do, I did some of that, but not a lot of that. And what happened to me was that I, in my second week um, at the magazine, there happened to be this case that was get, starting to get a lot of play in the news about this conspiracy to murder trial. I played quite a bit of squash uh, when I was uh, a teenager and a boy that I played against a a fair bit, his father was sort of at the center of this case and his father worked on Bay Street and he claimed to have been the victim of a scam, uh, you know, by these two gentlemen he met coincidentally through a a squash league. And uh, they basically got him to give them about a half a million dollars. And they said they were investing it in this and investing it in that. And then after a year or so went by and he wanted to start to see some returns on his investments and there weren't any problems started. And it was uh, alleged that these two guys went and went to a friend who they thought had shady connections and asked him to ask them if he could find them a hitman. What they didn't know is that their their friend did have connections, although he was he was in trouble himself. And so he used this this request to, to go straight to the police and try to get some leniency, leverage it to his own good, if you will. Uh, the hitman turned out to be an, an undercover cop a very experienced undercover cop with biker, you know, undercover biker background and so forth. So he met these guys in a parking lot down by the lakefront and they had a CBC makeup artist look like this guy whose name is Stephen Dulmage had been shot in the head at close range and they took a Polaroid of the hitman, his gargantuan hands holding Dulmage's head with blood trickling down his face. And so when he met with these two guys, you know, he showed them the Polaroid and they were of course like completely, even though they were expecting something like they were still surprised to see right. their buddy like dead. And the cop threw their, his Dulmage's wallet at them just to prove that, yeah. you know, he, he'd had contact with him. So I spent a couple of weeks of my internship covering this trial. Now, one thing I didn't write about in my piece was that this engendered some ill will with other staff members at Toronto Life at the time. Because you suddenly weren't fetching coffee anymore. Exactly. And there were other people who were doing things like fact-checking at Toronto Life in order to be able to write or to do other things that were a little more uh, satisfying to them. At least they, they, they had jobs and they, were, they had salaries and they were being paid to do these, 
these tasks like checking and 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 they were very good at, at doing what they did it's an interesting case because had they done a better job of preparing for your entrance into their workplace and said well you know we owe it to this kid to figure out some tasks for him and you know it's an apprenticeship kind of thing we have, you know like let's make sure that we get the most out of it and give him some work and take and take some time to train him if they had done that stuff you might not have had occasion to report what became a Toronto Life cover story no i mean i'm not you know in retrospect i'm not upset about the way it worked out. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that I did it when I did it and that I didn't do it later when it was more structured. I would have, I would probably never have had an opportunity like that. I think it's pretty rare. I mean, when I was editing Toro, there were some cases where there were some young people who had obvious, you know, writing talent and who got to work on some things that were beyond just like fact checking, yeah. you know, restaurant reviews or whatever. But, but my, my internship ended in September of uh, 1993. And most of the writing and a lot of the research all happened after my internship ended. John McFarland, the editor of Toronto Life, told me that he was really happy with the piece and they were going to put it on the cover in February 94's issue. By the time that news was delivered to me, I was in a more desperate situation than I'd been in at the beginning of my internship because I'd now been kind of going full bore at this internship and writing this story and researching it and, and not getting paid anything and living in my grandmother's basement. And I now sort of, you know, exhausted any savings that I had. I had a huge amount of student debts looming. Once he told me this, I sent him, you know, close to the time when the piece was coming out, I got really desperate and I sent him a letter and I asked him to consider paying me a few thousand dollars, which was, you know, less than what he would have paid a more established writer. He wrote back and said, you know, I don't have any money to pay you. We got a great story out of it. You got the opportunity to work on something like this and work with an experienced editor. And as far as I'm concerned, it was a good deal for both parties. And uh, that was that. And um, film producers started contacting me about wanting to option the rights. Mm -hmm. And so the end of the story is that I eventually got an agent and the agent negotiated with the, the film producer and eventually there was an option deal and as part of the uh, formalizing the option deal we had to go to John McFarland to sign off so that Toronto Life is basically relinquishing any ownership of the story and when that happened John said Toronto Life is well within its rights to you know, have a percentage of these proceeds. And in my mind, I was like, you know, you, you, you've got to be fucking kidding me. And then he said, but I'm not going to do that. And then he signed the sheet and handed it to me and he said, good luck with your movie. And that was sort of my cue to leave his office, I think. It's such a strange story in so many ways. I mean... And John McFarlane is an editor who has a, a reputation for finding talent and nurturing it and grooming writers. He gave you the chance. He saw something in you. You took the opportunity, found a great story that ended up on his cover. He thought it was you know worthy enough to put on his cover. And for this to get mired in like, I guess I would have figured that this story would have ended with you getting a job at Toronto Life. It seems so strange for you to have ended on bad terms or just like that, that was the end of the relationship based on that. It wasn't as though that caused any overt acrimony between the two of us. I think he was kind of a bit blind to the way that I really felt. Which is how? Well, I felt like I had worked very hard to produce something that um, ended up working out pretty well. I think I would have done something like that 
regardless of whether I ever had an internship at Toronto Life or not. I just didn't think it was the right way to treat somebody. He basically set me up, and I think this is a real problem with the publishing industry, is that he basically set me up for a career in which the very first thing of value that I did, a real value, a cover story like that, he basically said to me that that wasn't worth anything. And I think that's a, an epidemic problem in the industry. Um, that very notion can loom over people's entire careers. Yeah, to the extent that you can kind of judge uh, an industry by how it treats the people who want to join it. You know, that that's your first interaction. And you'd come to them with all this training and you'd been to this Ivy League school and you'd written a novel. Yeah. And that led to Toronto Life having an internship program. That's right. But um, yeah, and you know, and I, I was a little surprised when the news broke last week to hear there were five interns at Toronto Life and that there were 11 interns or something like that at the Walrus. But this is not, let's not pick on these two magazines, even if the Ontario Labor Board did. This is industry-wide practice. Everybody uses free labor. Uh, Not everybody. Canadian business has a good internship program. In fact, when I was editing Toro Magazine, you know, I think our, our managing editor did some research on internship programs and she came back to me and she said, well, the best internship program I can, you know, sort of find in the magazine business is Canadian business internship program. And so I said, well, great. If that's the best, let's model it after that, which is what we did. And it was an honorarium or it was pay? No, it was paid. And I can't remember now the exact, I can't remember whether it was like 2000 a month or $1,500 a month, but it was, you know, it wasn't based on an hourly wage. Um, it was, but it was based on, you know, what's the upper end of a, of a monthly what do you want to call it, a stipend or, you know, a sum. It's interesting, though, that it was just this totally arbitrary thing. Do we do an honorarium or a stipend? I mean, everybody else who hires young people to do work, just you have to do minimum wage or more. Right. You know, like there's there we have laws about this. Right. How has this industry somehow convinced itself that it's not subject to those laws? Well, it's funny because I actually was reading this piece that came out in 1995 in the Ryerson Review of Journalism about unpaid internships. And there was, it, there was a quote from an editor at, I think it was either Flair or Chatelaine, one of the Rogers magazines. The writer of the piece asks her, you know, why did you, you know, hire these unpaid interns? And she literally says, to be honest, for free labor. Sure. There was an interview a few days ago on CBC with the founder of, or one of the founders of uh, the Walrus, Ken Alexander. And the Walrus paid interns $2,000 a month. And uh, they all of a sudden told Ken, at a certain point that they weren't going to do that anymore and they weren't going to pay them anymore. When he asked them uh, why they were not going to pay the interns anymore, the answer was, according to Ken, because that's what everybody else does. Yeah. It's this thing that feeds itself. And so you have all these people, it's, it's, it's free labor, they're, they're, they're skilled, typically young people who want to get into publishing and who can get their foot in the door usually are you know, A, educated, B, presentable. They come with a whole basket of skills. They're accomplished young people. Yes. And we should say like 11 interns at the Walrus, does that mean that one of them gets a job? I mean, I, I don't know that that necessarily, like if that's an entry level where there's some sort of a job flow chart where we're trying to find the best so they can move up, then maybe there's some way to justify it there. But I think that this, you know, the practice is happening regardless. I think that a lot of publishers will tell you, if somebody excels here, they'll get a great reference and a line on their resume, but we're not looking for somebody to hire the next year. No. I mean, there are people who do get hired after their internships. I mean, let's face it. People like to hire people they're familiar with. Sure. And so doing an internship on the surface is a good way 
to kind of raise the odds of that happening. And if you're if you've been chosen to, to take an internship, if you have the you know the economic security to take it, it behooves you as well to not get righteously indignant about this situation. No, because you you might be. And I think every every kid who does it thinks I'll be the lucky one who shines here. Right. But my thing about the unpaid part of it is just that. I mean, John McFarlane himself about, I, th- I think it was a year, year or so ago, he wrote a column in The Walrus about in his interns, as, as he did one, at one point in time at, at Toronto Life as well. And he, he basically talks about how there's this bargain, which we just referred to earlier, where these young people come in and they're looking for opportunity and we educate them and we teach them how to fact check and we expose them to other people in the media and they sit down on meetings and they expand their journalistic knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. And And in return, we get these young skilled people doing, you know, things that are of value here at the magazine and they can they, they contribute in other ways. I mean they're young, they're tech savvy, they yeah. study things that, you know, other people at the magazine, you know, don't have that much knowledge about and you know, they, they contribute in like all these different ways. He then makes a comparison to the heyday of The New Yorker, where there was this like glorious fact checking research department and People at the New Yorker didn't look down their noses at these people who were professional fact checkers. Like it was a legitimate, they weren't lackeys. They weren't going out and getting coffee for people. Like they were respected. And it's funny when you read the comments because there's like a dozen comments ripping him for saying on the one hand, it's a profession and that these people like make livelihoods and careers out of being fact checkers. Yet at the Walrus, your business model dictates that it's being done by these young people out of school who aren't being paid. Yeah, either it's of value or it isn't. Right, and he's he somehow, like, he misses the point. Like, it's a total blind spot to him that these people are providing a service. Yeah. Are you really educating them? If your side of the bargain is that you're providing them with fact check skills. Well, they could they could go to Ryerson or they could. Or if you actually have a paid position and you happen to learn on the job, as we all do, should that be deducted from your paycheck at the end of the week? Or, right. you know, what do you say? And just to present the contrary argument, which the walrus has made and others are making, you're kicking us when we're down. We need this. We want this. The interns want it. They, they're lining up to come here. And I can actually tell you that that's absolutely true. I'm doing an independent podcast and I have people coming to me to work for free. Some of whom have like graduate degrees and a lot of experience and they want to come work for me for free. That tells you something about the job market out there. It it is 20 years after you were involved in internships. They have become standardized. uh, Some of them with honorariums, some of them without, some of them for in exchange for school credit, some of them without, but just about every publication is, is uh, depending on essentially free or incredibly cheap labor at a time when publishing is an incredibly dire straits. So what do you say to that argument from these uh, publications that's in everyone's best interest and the government should butt out? Well, I guess I'd say two things. One, one is that it's not as though these companies like St. Joseph's Media or Rogers, it's not like they don't have any money. I mean, when Tony Viner, the president of Rogers Media, retired back in whatever it was, 2010, there, I think Forbes reported that he was given like, you know, that year he got like two and a half million dollars or something like that. Maybe four or five years ago, I was asked to do a panel for the Canadian Society of Magazine to be on a panel for a luncheon they had. And John McFarlane was on the panel, one of the people on the panel with me. And uh, it was primarily about why have rates for freelancers been stuck at the same, you know, rate for 25, 30 years, whatever it's been. And, you know, at one point, John said, well, you know, the elephant in the room is that these publications don't have any money. And 
a couple of his colleagues kind of called him on that. I mean, because the elephant in the room is that he had a really generous six-figure salary. And under him, the uh, editorial budget at Toronto Life remained, there, there was, it, it was never increased in 12 years. Ken Alexander, when asked this very question about the walrus and the internships there, his first, the first thing he says is, I think if you want to go down that path, you have to take a look at what the bosses are making. And I think what a lot of people don't like about the sort of position that the, the John McFarlands and the Douglas Knights and the Shelley Ambroses of the world take is that they're mired in the muck with the rest of us and that they're poverty stricken and they're struggling artists like the rest of us. The truth is they're not. The people who are in management get direct act. They have FaceTime with the people who are making budgets. And as a result, they, they get a say in what gets allocated where first. That's why people who work in the office make more money. Uh, and I'm not saying they shouldn't, yeah. but, but, they, but they make more money than the people who don't work in the office, who freelance or who are independent because they don't have any face time in the office. That's the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is that it's great for these people. Like they give, I think what a lot of people don't like, and I think even when John McFarlane, I know for a fact, because a lot of people who, who worked with John you know, as writers for many years, um, you know, they would never say this to him, but when he was being honored for his lifetime achievement at the National Magazine Awards one year, like, I think a lot of people were pretty ambivalent about it, to be completely honest, because they, they were conflicted because on the one hand, he's seen, as you said earlier, as this person who's done all these things for different, given all these opportunities to photographers and writers and illustrators and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, if you asked him, why has the pay stayed the same for 20 years? Uh, well, we just don't have any money. Yeah. And I think people have grown tired of that sucking and blowing thing. And I'm not saying, sorry, let me just clarify. I'm not saying that I'm somehow naive that, that a senior executive at a media company would be making six-figure salaries or, you know, well into the six-figure salaries. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that this doesn't exist elsewhere. Yeah, but when you've got a six-figure salary making manager uh, or executive claiming poverty as to why he can't pay minimum wage yeah, that's the thing to, to someone who's entering the, his field. Yeah, like if you're making $250,000 a year, don't cry about the fact that you lost your five unpaid interns. As the industry and the media in general is going through what it's going through, there's still a privileged class that doesn't want anything to change for them. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't change the fact that the industry is going through changes. For sure. And, you know, you talk about Rogers. Well, you know, the publishing arm of Rogers uh, <laughs> is not where the money's coming from at Rogers. And you talk about St. Joe's, which is also a publishing, uh, you know, printing press. I don't know what their overall economic picture is, but my guess is their magazine concern is not the cash cow there. We don't know the numbers, but is it a lost leader? Is it a prestige play? But the basic business model of a magazine in Canada is not necessarily a viable business model anymore. The, no. the industry itself might not work as a business and maybe the cracks are just showing. Maybe the only way it has been able to work is by doing things like uh, employing, you know, free labor. Yeah, no. And, and I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm as aware of that as, as anyone else, but there are still lots of people getting paid decent salaries at a magazine like Toronto Life um, or at, Chatelaine or, you know, at, at other, other publications. Um, but I, I think, you know, I, I think this is the big question. Like if you want to look at the walrus where there were 11 unpaid interns, 
Now, I'm a guy who's you know made much of my career either writing or editing long form journalism. I've been a big proponent of long form journalism. You know, and the Walrus is one of the last. You know, there's like a handful of places left in this country that actually you know pay something like a dollar a word that that, are, that still exist. But if you need 11 young people to work for you around the calendar year to make your magazine run, I'm sorry, but maybe that magazine isn't a viable business right now. Is it, is it more important that the walrus, however you feel about the walrus, some people love it, some people think it's the driest thing since burnt toast. I mean, it's a real spectrum. How important, I mean, the, I know, like basically ever since the dawn of the walrus, you know, it's always had a self-importance. And, and you know, I mean, is it, is it that important that we have to have 11 young people working for no money? Well, and then just thinking about those 11 young people, I just keep thinking those 11 young people should leave those internships and start their own magazine. They'd be doing a lot better if they just started a website. Let's talk about that for a second, because the case that was made on behalf of these poor interns when, when the labor ministry cracked down was, you know, you're putting these kids on the street and we were giving them an opportunity. I have been asking the question for some time, where are the new publications, the new online publications in this country, because for all of the d destruction in the States, there's been a huge proliferation of new websites and blogs and all kinds of journalistic uh, experiments and enterprises. We have not seen anything near that here. I can't help but wonder if, if you maintain the illusion that there's an industry, the illusion that there's a system where the best and the brightest every year submit their resumes and then they, they start to show up for work and it just becomes this extension of university by a couple of years, subsidized by the parents of those who can afford it. And then you find a lot of people who start to hit around 30 and they've been paid a stipend here, an honorarium there. They did a freelance thing here. They did a, a blog post there. And they kind of can feel like they've been paid journalists, but they're not making what they would make if they worked at McDonald's. Mm -hmm. And they would have been better off when they were just out of university at 22, 23, just saying, either let me get into a different field or I'm going to get together with some buddies and we're going to build something of our own. Like yeah. Vice. Yeah, that's how Vice happened, right? Yeah. Plus, plus a welfare grant. Yeah. Um, a, a week ago, I was I was asked to speak to a, a master's class at Ryerson University, and I, it was a, it was a, a feature writing class, magazine feature writing class. And you know, it's true. Like, I'd be lying if I wasn't saying like this. This entire class, in some ways, is an illusion. This course is an illusion because. In Canada, there's like literally three or four magazines that even run features. Like a year ago, Canadian Geographic did a, a reader poll and the reader poll came back saying some of the stories are too long. So now apparently in Canadian Geographic, like there's no stories more than say 1500 words. Well, yeah, if we're talking about the illusion of an industry, the journalism school is pumping out thousands of yeah. graduates every year into a field that doesn't have room for any of them is sort of part of that illusion. Right. You know, for all of the destruction the internet has brought to this profession, there are incredible opportunities. And as long as we have this illusionary industry as opposed to a dynamic industry, right. you, you can't benefit from that. And the other thing that's you know complicated about, about writing uh, is that a lot of it is not net always based on money. It's based on other things like ego and, yeah. and, and, uh, and a creative impulse. And, you know, there are writers out there who don't really care about this kind of stuff. You know, I know people who are, you know, they've got a wife who's a surgeon and yeah. you know, they take care of the two kids and it's not really, you know, if Transcontinental comes out with a contract that wants to grab copyright from them or take away their moral rights, like, yeah, they're sort of irritated by that and they don't agree with it. But 
what happens is at the end is the fact that they've got to call him or whatever, or whatever. It trumps the fact, you know, that the ego trumps the uh, moral indignation. They're not trying to preserve this as an industry because it's, you know, that, that's not a, their bread and butter. They're not reliant on it in that way. No. And frankly, I, I think this unpaid internship thing, even though everybody's like, I sort of felt like Doug Knight was pouting in his response. He's like, their, their response was like, oh, yeah, well, we're not going to train all those young whippersnappers anymore. And we're going to take our marbles and we're going to go home. But I think when the dust settles and the marbles come out again and the sun shines, like I have a feeling that in the long run, it, 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 you know, young people will start actually getting hired. I mean, if they needed 11 unpaid pe- people to run the wall, it's like somebody's going to have to do something. They'll pay for the labor they need and yeah. the people who they can't afford maybe will go do something else. Or maybe they'll go work for Twitter where I just read that internships are like just below $7,000 a month. I think everything will will shake down in the end. It'll it'll work itself out, and I, I don't think like there are still lots of good paid internship programs out there, or at you know newspapers like the Toronto Star, or the you know the Globe and Mail, or magazines like Canadian Business or Maclean's, who are all in the same boat as everybody else, and that they are trying to navigate what the future is, and um, the navigation of the future is is going to involve young people. It's not just like the old geezers who are who are steering the boat. I think however everything pans out, I think it's all for the good. I think it's really good for young people, even if they're pay, being paid minimum wage. I think it allows it allows a lot of people who wouldn't have necessarily been uh, able to do internships. It allows them to even consider doing it. I think it all of us, it, it makes you as a human being, it makes you feel better to get paid for what you're doing. I think it takes the privilege out of it. And frankly, if you go to some newsrooms or magazine offices, like they are very, very, very white. Yeah. And Alexandra Mlaco at, at Hazlitt was writing about that. Like that's the real problem with internships is that basically because all the people who are feeding into them are basically have, have the same homogeneity and they come from the same kinds of backgrounds. They went to the same school. You're just streamlining the voices who are going yeah. to be, you know, who are going to be every time there's a big problem, there's a G8 summit or whatever. There's, you know, differences of opinions about things like Crimea or whatever. You're going to be banging the same drum. Okay, that's your Canada Land Show. I hope you liked it. Come to the website at canadalandshow.com where I'm throwing up a video all about this anti-cyber bully bill, which is totally not an anti-cyber bully bill. Come check it out. Email me at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at jessebrown. I will have another podcast for you on Monday. If you like this show, recommend it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will let me serve in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.